You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Sila. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Discriminology. I am your co-host, Malik Silal, and I'm also here with my other co-hosts. Hey, y'all, it's Sid. Hey, it's Sandra. And I'm also happy to announce our latest addition, Mr. Kramer. Woo-hoo. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Woo-hoo. Welcome. If you haven't tuned into our prior episodes, Mr. Kramer was a guest on episode three and five, I believe. So if you haven't heard those episodes yet, please circle back and check those out. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the origins and roots of the phrase black on black crime. Um, It's a phrase that's been used to weaponize and invalidate initiatives for justice and equality for the black community, particularly during discussions regarding law enforcement, police reform, and police brutality. We will explain how this narrative can obstruct insightful dialogue and delay thorough root cause analysis when discussing the true drivers of crime in the United States. Sandeep Dhaliwal will be helping us do that today. Sandeep is a lawyer. He graduated from Farmingdale. He ultimately went on to Columbia Law School, which he graduated from in 2016. And he now works for a New York City law firm where he focuses on financial regulation, immigration, and criminal justice. So Sandeep, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, uh, Malik and the whole whole team. It's great to be here. And I'm a fan of the podcast. And uh, yeah, looking forward to discussing. We might as well jump right into it. So as I discussed before, it's uh, black on black crime is usually used as a rebuttal when um, having conversations about police brutality against the black community. Sandy, why is that so popular? Is there any validity to that? How did this narrative begin? I think anytime there's a movement for criminal justice, a movement uh, against police, there is, you know, a variety of different arguments that come up. Look, there's all this black on black crime. Why does it come up? I think we're going to get into that. In terms of the validity, Malik, you, I think you have some of the statistics, but if we, if we look at the data, there is, you know, if you look at violence, you'll see if you're a victim of violence and you're black, the perpetrator of that violence is likely to also be Black. That's also true across uh, racial groups. There's a lot to unpack in terms of that being an explanation or, or something that comes up in this debate. I'll just you know, speak generally, and then maybe Malik, maybe you want to say something about the actual numbers. But usually what you see is you know, calls for reform, calls for and criminal justice reform specifically. And then usually you see appeals to or or citing of data around violence, data around crime. And, you know, historically, um, and even today, there's a focus on black on black crime as a way to delegitimize some of these movements to cast doubt into their goals to say, well, what about this problem? And, you know, we'll, we'll get into a lot of problems. And I think Mr. Kramer is probably the best to speak to it from a historical perspective. But, um, yeah, I'm really, I don't know if you wanted to jump in with any of the numbers or... We did some research and we pulled the numbers from the FBI homicide data. In 2018, there were 2,975 Black homicide victims. 
and the perpetrators were 90% also African-American. So, I mean, just from a number standpoint, I guess if you quickly looked at that and didn't think through it or ended your research right there, you would cite black on black crime. I think crime is a lot more complex than that. I think that's kind of uh, lazy, if you will. I think the, the, the biggest kind of um, misnomer here or misconception even to say the least about this is that people think that this is like a legitimate um, argue, isolated like argument to explain, you know, crime or to explain like prevalence of violence in our society. And, and I think, you know, citing this, talking about this table, this, this table that Malik um, just referenced specifically, like, yes, you know, the majority of um, murders of black people that happened in, in, I guess in 2018, according to this table, the perpetrators were also black, but um, like Sandeep alluded to, the same is for other racial groups. It's the same for white people. It's the same for Latino people. It's the same for any other racial group. Like the likelihood that a murder of a certain racial group is gonna be the, the person of that same group is high. Like that's, it's not just this isolated incident talking about isolated, an isolated group of people talking about black people. Like we don't use the same term for other racial groups for a reason. And there's a reason why we don't say white on white crime even though the numbers will show that that is also true. We don't say Asian on Asian crime. We don't say these things. It's only Black, referencing Black people. I totally agree. And I feel like as this episode goes on, uh, the facts will come out and it really just going to all point to it's the media just covering this up and trying to make it like um, a race thing instead. So I know that we'll get to that more in depth too. Those numbers are more indicative of racial segregation in the United States than they are crime numbers. If neighborhoods were more integrated, then those numbers would go down for every racial group. And and we covered uh, segregation in in one of our earlier episodes, but I I don't really think that's a, a true driver to validate this argument. Right. The only thing that 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 does is show the invalidity of that myth or this mythical social construct that is black on black crime like it, it it was created and it was used as a driving force to to describe to describe crime in, in our society and also to incite fear in people and to make people believe that black people are inherently more violent dangerous etc cetera, etc cetera. like there's that's and that's that's the root of this quote-unquote phrase that people now try to use as a tool to explain crime in our society and then to further explain why police brutality doesn't happen and this, that, and the third. So I, I think one real important thing to ask is why do people respond with black on black crime? Why is that the response? When, when you're talking about something like institutional racism, why do people say, what about black on black crime? Why is that the response? So what about black on black crime? Do you have any, anything to add? Do you have any fixes for black on black crime? Do you have any solutions? Or are you just trying to deflect from what the real problem is? And the real problems always come from the power structures. You know, there's, there's no comparing when somebody in power uses their power to inflict violence to where people who either know each other or live near each other or live in the same community commit crimes in communities. There's no comparing that. So I think that's really the, the crux of the, of the question here. Why do people go to this idea of black-on-black crime? And that is definitely to deflect and this whataboutism. You know, well, what about black-on-black crime? It has nothing to do with when we're talking about police brutality. Are they asserting that police need to be brutal because there is black-on-black crime? 
and that doesn't make any sense. So you always got to ask people, what about black on play? Okay, what about it? What do you got? You got anything? You know? So I think that's a big problem. Even in terms of criminal justice reform, like as you were saying, like what about black on black crime? How does it relate to the the current conversation that that's currently going on? Like, are you saying that to say that the criminal justice system shouldn't be reformed? Are you saying that to infer that people of color are inherently biologically more violent than other racial groups? Um, I think there's a million questions you can ask that person that's using that argument, but chances are I don't even think it's been thought out that thoroughly and that far. I think it stops at, oh, what about black on black crime, as you said? Going on the criminal justice uh, reform point that Malik just brought, there's a criminal justice reform movement that's part of police reform movement. And yeah, again, it's a deflection or it's some sort of counter argument. I think this is something we'll discuss with more examples later. But this also ignores the fact that violence is a relatively small part of that. You know, so much of the criminal justice system is criminalizing drug use, it's criminalizing, you know, other other things related to drugs, a lot of misdemeanors that are nonviolent, non-serious offenses, a lot of other other things that are criminalizing poverty and you know when you're when you're talking about this broad movement to have uh, what is being policed a lot of times what is being policed nonviolent non-serious quote crimes these are treated as crimes that's what's being over policed at times and that's what's leading to a lot of encounters with police that you know uh, are otherwise unnecessary unproductive there are better solutions and there's a history of that over-policing happening to Black people because of what we choose to criminalize, things that we don't have to criminalize, or how severely we choose to punish certain activities, but we treat other very similar activities more leniently, you know, for no legitimate reason um, that, you know, and those differences and end up having these racially disparate impacts. And yeah, it's, it's just, it, you know, it's, it's too simple of an argument. Um, and it really overlooks way too many things to, to, to be a serious explanation. But, you know, I know we're trying to, to entertain the, the argument here. So It's good that you brought up decriminalization. Black people have been criminalized since the end of slavery. That's not a new narrative. And I think the root cause of all these deflections, such as black on black crime, or if you ask people, like, why are they protesting? Why don't they protest what's happening in Chicago or inner city shootings and things of that nature? Uh, Mr. Kramer, can you dive into the nuances of, of how Black people have been criminalized since the end of slavery? The 13th Amendment does not abolish slavery, and it's what you're taught. You're always taught 13th abolishes slavery, 14th gives citizenship, 15th gives the right to vote. None of those happened. And the 13th Amendment doesn't read slavery is abolished. It reads slavery is abolished except if it's being used for incarcerated people. So what happened in Jim Crow South is as soon as they were able to write these laws, they criminalized being black. You were, it was illegal to be black. If you did not have a job, they had vagrancy laws. And you're actually arrested and put into chain gangs and working the rock simply for being unemployed and being black. So the 13th Amendment did not do what it said it was, was going to do. In fact, it made it, it made it easier for Southerners to arrest Black people and to put them into servitude. You know, that's forced servitude in the 13th Amendment. So uh, all of this fear that was created of the freed Black man in the South 
fed into these laws and people, people were fed these fears. And then if you, you know, as you start working your way through reconstruction and the growth of the clan and then the rebirth of the clan with DW Griffith's birth of a nation, that was really the first time that you really saw the clan the way we see the clan today, wearing the hoods and burning the crosses. They didn't do that before birth of a nation. You know, Griffith kind of, he came up with that idea. So there you saw media driving reality, you know? So then the, the Klan really amped up its actions there. And of course the lynchings, which is a whole other episode. But my point is, is that if you were a black person in Jim Crow South, you were perceived to be a criminal. And then the civil rights movement happened, you know, later, obviously, you know, as we're moving our way through and they had to find a different way to criminalize being black. So the, the Nixon administration came up with the Southern strategy, and that was to drive former Southern Democrats to the Republican Party through fear. You know, this is not made up. This is the same language they're using today. Nixon was the law and order president, just like our current president is the law and order president. And he's excusing the people who are murdering other people and criminalizing the people who are exercising their First Amendment rights. And that is something that has continued in this country for, for Black people historically. So historically, being Black in, in many parts of the nation has simply deemed you to be a criminal. Then we get into all sorts of other dog whistle language that a lot of other people have used. You know, you know Hillary Clinton famously called uh, criminals in New York, the super predators, and there was all this fear about this sort of thing, which is why she didn't do, do as well with the black community. So there, there's all sorts of fear out there, and there's all sorts of fear about this wild black man that's going to come. And now, when you look at what's going on today, they're going after the suburban housewives. They're scaring the suburban housewives, or they think they are scaring the suburban housewives, which is if you look back to the 19, early 1970s, late 60s, early 70s with Nixon, they were the same target group. So the suburbs were scared. Black people are moving into the suburbs. You should be scared. And these are the people that the current administration is trying to court to their side with all these new fears. You know, you saw those two people there that were guarding their house with submachine guns. They were invited to the RNC, for God's sakes. Those people were breaking all sorts of laws where the protesters were exercising their First Amendment rights, breaking no laws. So there is a very long history of, of black being criminalized just for being black. I think a great example of that that we can't ignore is the current drug epidemic, the opioid crisis, and the comparison to the crack e epidemic that happened in the 80s. It's a tale of two stories. I mean, why was it treated so different um, by the government? Why did our government respond so differently between people using crack and losing their jobs? You know, the, those people were criminalized. The only difference comparing those two situations were the fact that the actual drug was different and the community in which it affected. Malik, if I can, if I can add to, you know, some of that, just now I'm going to take a, I guess like a, this is going to be a little bit of a technical perspective on the, on the crack cocaine stuff. But I, I, well, I guess a good starting point is drug overdeaths in, tw in 2019, nearly 70,000. This is from below, you know, 20,000 in 1999. In that interim period, there is incredibly harsh penalties for low-level drug offenses, just subjecting them to super harsh penalties. 
And yet, you know, we have a ballooning of drug overdose deaths, you know, from that period up until now. What that suggests to me is that this is, you know, we, we needed to be thinking about this as a public health issue all along and, and thinking about treatment and preventing abuse. You know, to set that aside for for a bit, this the crack cocaine stuff is honestly probably the mo- the single most alarming example in our federal sentencing laws. So in 1986, a law gets passed. This sets all these various mandatory minimums for a bunch of different drug crimes. And you have this, what's known, becomes known as the 100 to 1 uh, sentencing disparity between crack cocaine on the one hand and powder cocaine. So say, you know, you get caught with five grams of crack cocaine and you get charged with possession with, you know, intent to distribute you're automatically subject to a five-year mandatory minimum. For that same mandatory minimum with powder cocaine, you would have had to get caught with or um, had evidence of five-year involvement with 500 grams of powder cocaine. What was the reason for this? Fear-mongering, you know, crack was more, you know, associated, crack cocaine was more associated with poorer black communities. Powder cocaine was a richer person's drug. And for whatever reasons, it was treated more leniently. You know, before, before uh, this law comes in 86, Congress actually established a U.S. Sentencing Commission. The U.S. Sentencing Commission is this independent body that, you know, they're, they're supposed to oversee sentencing. How are we punishing crime in our country? And one of the things that they're supposed to do is collect data, report on data. In the 90s, they're sending Congress reports saying, look, these laws that were, you know, ha- were enacted um, in the 80s, they're clearly having a racially disparate impact. It, it, it was pretty stark, the evidence. And so Congress knows this in the 90s, but nothing happens. There's no reform. They, I think they issue four or five different reports, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s. It isn't until 2010 that um, the Fair Sentencing Act is passed. There, it's, it's this weird, funky compromise where they take that 100 to 1 ratio and they just reduce it to 18 to 1. There's no scientific, medical, empirical reason for this different treatment. And we have the evidence of a racially disparate impact, yet they, they're only able to do this 18 to 1 compromise. And what's, what's perhaps even worse um, is that if you were sentenced a day before that act was passed, you have no relief. You're stuck with the hundred to one, you know, the severity of that hundred to one ratio. And this is the type of stuff that, look, it took 25 years to get incomplete progress on something we had reliable data on. There's, there, you know, people have a reason to be upset about like unfair deflection now that is not thoughtful, that doesn't really engage with the information. I think what Sandeep kind of like just explained what causes people to get angry about these these deflections and these diversions from what's really going on is that these things are not made up like these things these these what we are um, saying and and trying to get across and trying to make known are backed up by factual data and numbers like these things are not made up these systems are functioning and these things are happening they're happening for a reason because these institutions and these systems are messed up and that is the nicest possible way that I can say that are completely broken and racist and and unjust and so when we when people hear these deflections when we talk specifically about police reform and police brutality 
it's not because we're whining. It's not because we're, we're unsatisfied or because we're, I don't even know the things that people say, but like, it's because these things need to change. Like there's, they happen for a reason. They've been happening. They were created for a reason and created to function the way that they're functioning. And so th there's to deflect from that and then to deflect to this argument about black on black crime is like a way to explain is mind blowing. I mean, we, we've drawn a lot of examples of hypocrisy, but what are we even deflecting from um, when that argument is utilized? The comparison to let's let's even take a situation. A black person kills another black person. How does that equate to a police officer, which is a government official now killing a citizen? There's a blatant difference in power structure right there. So even from that point alone, one, the deflection doesn't even answer black on black crime. And one just has nothing to do with the other. So I think if if you wanna if if you wanna make progress and you wanna engage and you do have people that are seriously interested in engaging when they bring this up, black and black crime, you say, okay, what do you think the solutions are? Are are the solutions really over policing as Sandeep was getting to? Are the solutions really uh, larger sentences for black people? Is that is that really true? I mean, give them that argument. Okay, black on black crime, got it. What do you want to do about it? Right. And I think the answers have always been very clear and the answers have always worked. And that is getting people who live in underprivileged neighborhoods the resources they need to be successful. It's pretty obvious that resource scarcity in communities leads to crime. If you look at, if you look across the board, whether it's a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood or a Hispanic neighborhood, where there are a lack of resources, crime is higher. And that's that's kind of easy to understand, but it's hard for people to believe that people are stuck in those neighborhoods. Well, why don't they just move? Why don't they just get out of that neighborhood? Like they have like a moving van ready and a place to go. You know, they got a nice house in the suburbs ready to go to. So it's really about getting resources. You know, um, I, I, I shared an article with, with Malik and Sandeep. There was a, a small area of Baltimore, a small uh, school uh, district in, within Baltimore that started giving out free eyeglasses. They tested kids, they tested them for eyesight, then they gave out free eyeglasses. And they saw across the board, and it makes sense, that their scores went up because the kids couldn't see. They couldn't see the board and they couldn't get eyeglasses. The kids go their whole lives who need eyeglasses who just simply can't afford them and the resources aren't there. Um, I believe I'm quoting the statistic right. Uh, it was 20% or 80% of the kids that were tested never got eyeglasses, that needed eyeglasses, never got eyeglasses. And that's, that's an incredible statistic. And that's, that's one of the more simple resources that you think you could get out there to the kids. And then the article talked about when they were tested there in that district, they had traditionally been tested in pre-K first grade, and then they weren't tested again until eighth grade. So they would go seven years never getting an eye test or even knowing that they needed glasses. So uh, a very micro example of how resources can help a community. And of course we know the better your education, the more successful you are in schools, the far less likely you are to, to commit crimes because you'll have other avenues. So I think that, you know, if you want to engage with people, then you have, you're going to have to say, okay, what do you want to do about it? How would you like to fix black on black crime? Here's one, here's one answer for you. Why don't you help us get resources into neighborhoods? So first of all, I agree. And that's been the common theme throughout all of our podcasts is that lack of access to resources creates these disparate situations. 
But I want to go back to what you said about over-policing. Um, I was discussing with Sandeep the other day that he gave an example of stop and frisk in New York City. Long story short, those increased interactions did not decrease crime levels. Sandeep, I'll, I'll allow you to um, speak to that a little bit more, but I, I thought that was an important point to bring up. When I was an undergrad at Columbia, there's, you know, Columbia's on 116th and Broadway. Broadway is where all like the bars, the restaurants, delis, other, you know, everyone goes there to get food, to hang out right near campus. And this is a time when New York City was, was very, was very safe, you know, relatively speaking as a big city, as a big city. There's this, there's this deli Milano's where everyone gets their, their, these, these sandwiches. And it turned out that an employee at Milano's Deli had had stopped and frisked Forrest Whitaker. If you don't know who Forrest Whitaker is, you know, Oscar, Oscar winning actor, obviously very successful, but it just goes to, sh- it was, it was this, um, and then I saw, and then I read about it in like, in like Columbia's like low, you know, Columbia, whatever the student newspaper had covered it. And I didn't think much of it, but it goes to show you that, you know, no matter what, level of success you have notoriety if you're if you're black you're not you weren't immune to this you're not immune to this and then now going back to stop and frisk more broadly you know this employee did this it was this wasn't even the cops but this was indicative of this broader feeling about you know black people and their relationship to crime but if you look at stop and frisk let's just take 2011 that's when stop and frisk is at its height there are nearly that year nearly 700,000 stops that is literally more than one every single minute of the year. Somewhere in New York City, someone was being stopped and frisked. Over half of those people were Black people, um, obviously not in proportion with their representation in the broader New York City population. I, some huge number were, you know, were innocent. There was no crime, like something like 95% of everyone stopped and frisked. And of course, there you know this is around the time where lawsuits started to get started to be successful against stop and frisk. It was clearly being used to target Black and Latinx people. Um, there were some successful lawsuits. There was a lot of pushback by the public, and stop and frisk is drastically reduced over the next three years to from 700,000 stops, literally one again over one every minute of the entire year to below 50,000 in 2014. During that time, crime continues to drop consistent with the way it's been dropping. And so you had this immediate stop of of an example of over-policing, of an example of tons of police encounters with people, and, and you reduce it drastically, and crime continues to fall. So one, police weren't finding any crime in 2011 everyone you know everyone they were stopping and frisking was innocent of course they there are some examples of of people having a firearm or something but after that there was um criticism of stop and frisk and so the mayor police they say all right well no we're not catching people but we're deterring crime well it turns out they weren't even deterring crime because they stopped doing that and the crime numbers continued to fall and, you know, that's, that's something I've only really looked back on recently. And when I was a student at Columbia, I wasn't even a, really aware of this and, and thinking about it, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say, but it's a, it's a pretty revealing example. So, Sandeep, as you were saying, over-policing is not even a legitimate answer to the theory of Black-on-Black crime. I know we've been entertaining this argument 
throughout the podcast, but I, I think we've referenced enough examples to show that it's not doesn't have a, a high level of validity. My question is, and I know we were we were speaking about a term you shared with me the other day. I believe people's cognitive bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, I don't think people construct these arguments to be inherently or overtly racist. But we covered black on black crime because it's one of the most popular deflections, but there's a conglomerate of other deflections that that pretty much do the same thing. Why is this consistently a thing? Um, I mean, we, we spoke about the history of criminalization, but in, in more of an immediate setting, why does that persist? I think the number one reason is politically it's effective. Scare people, tell them you'll be tough on crime, win, win the election. That's a very common strategy. You know, even, you know, Bill Clinton, Democrats, they had to try to figure out how to appear tough on crime a few, you know, a few decades ago to try to win. And, you know, and people buy it. Even when crime is going down, Americans believe crime is going up or they're at, um, you know, at a higher risk of, of being the victim of crime than they really are. The polling consistently shows this. So if you are, if you're trying to win an election, it is a smart thing to, to bring up. It's not uh, honest. But if you're trying, if you're purely trying to win, it makes sense to bring up. Why is this happening? So there's this idea of the availability heuristic. This is how people think through a lot of problems. And the whole idea is when you're making judgments about something, when you're, when you're, you know, um, making a guess about the future, you, you take the information that's most readily available. The example with crime is that historically, what do you, what happens when you turn on your local news at 9 p.m.? It's like this person was murdered, that person was murdered, this person was robbed, there was a fire, and oh, look at this like cute, cute cat. That's like the, the scope of, of your local nightly news. So when you're being fed this, you start to form judgments about criminal justice, about policing, about crime, based off this obviously very incomplete information. So that's, that's what's been going on historically. I will say now, it, it, you know, obviously police brutality has gotten a lot more media coverage recently. And so that is also becoming something that's part of this, you know, what's available. So look, if you're only going to watch stuff about horrific murders and horrific crimes, yeah, you're going to think crime surrounds you. If you only watch videos of police brutality, you're likely to overstate how many police officers actually brutalize people. But if you're watching both or you're watching none, and then you're also examining like uh, what the historical data, historical counts and literature and studies looking at today shows, you will see that there is a racially disparate impact, that there is excessive um, use of force against black communities. So even, you know, the whole availability thing is, is shifting a bit. This goes into how news is done. And, you know, that's probably for a, a whole another podcast. But th there's, of course, going to be some sort of bias in, any, in anything. But there is a, a, a vast literature, many studies, history showing that what Black Lives Matter um, and what reformers are saying is based in truth, based in data. To go off what you said and kind of hammer down the, uh, the point of these narratives being used as deflections. As you said, currently, uh, a lot of Trump's re-election campaign is centered around being hard on crime. In 2018, there were 16K homicides. 
that's not even 10% of the total deaths we've incurred from COVID-19. And that's not even the dominant narrative of this election, at least what I've deduced. It's not the primary conversation. So if that's not really a blatant example of deflection, I, I can't really give a better one. I think the pandemic and the shutdown has glued everybody to their homes and glued everybody to their phones and social media where we didn't have access to that. You know, I'll be the old man for a second. We, we didn't have access to that 20 years ago. You know, we didn't, we didn't have access to everybody's phones, you know, five minutes after things happened. So I think one of the reasons that, you know, Malik's point is that people have had a lot of time at home to watch what's going on. And during the pandemic, we had all these events kind of come together in, in, this, in this great flashpoint that we really haven't seen since the 60s. So I think that along with what Sandeep was really eloquently talking about there with the availability heuristic is that what's available to you now, a lot more is available to you and a lot more is available instantly. And you're getting to see things. Now that's good and bad because people are seeing things and immediately reacting, not seeing a whole video. Well, you didn't see the whole video. And, and then you start making excuses and things like that. So it, it, it is a really, really interesting time for all of this. And it's, it's a difficult time for all of this because people see something and their minds are made up immediately and they don't process and they don't think. And these types of discussions that we're having are, are awesome. And I, and I hope people are having these kinds of conversations, but they're not the kind of thing that make the media, you know, it's, it's these gut reactions to the things that people are seeing. Uh, so I think um, before, now that, that's now that we're wrapping up and before Malik kindly takes us out, we talked about a whole lot in this um, episode today. And um, I kind of want to just, you know, tie it back to what the title and what the main purpose of this episode was about, which was talking about, quote unquote, and I'll put that in air quotes, um, black on black crime and how this notion, this narrative, this farcity, whatever you want to call it, how it was kind of created and used as a weapon to um, talk about and, and police and brutalize um, communities of color. And we just, you know, again, we did quote unquote entertain this narrative, this quote unquote black about crime for the purpose of presenting the information in this episode. But I do think I want to make it clear that, um, you know, this is not a valid argument. It's not a valid statement. It's not a real thing. Black on black crime as an isolated expl explanation for why black people are more dangerous and more violent, why crime, black people kill each other as opposed to other groups is not real. And so, you know, when you, the next time that you are talking to your peers, talking to people, and, you know, even if you're a black person listening and you hear this in your community and your family, because I've heard it among other black people, you know, the next time that you hear this, whether it's in the context of police brutality, um, whether it's in the context of talking about racism or racial injustice, whatever it is, you know, we really just want you to, to understand that this was a phrase created to incite fear, created to further this um, agenda, to create, a, uh, to create and further a divide in the perception of Black bodies and Black people in this country. And so this is, it, the it, it's just a phrase. That's what it is. A racist one and not a real one or a valid one. We just encourage our listeners to be thoughtful. No one is trying to say that you can't have these conversations or speak your mind or, you know, be open in, in this dialogue. We only encourage you to be thoughtful in this dialogue. Um, base your arguments beyond the headline of the article. Actually read the full article. Watch the entire video. 
you know, read, read books, read literature, listen to our podcast, self-promotion right there. But um, my point is, is that these very complex questions and societal issues are not, you're not going to have a thoughtful deduction or analysis of that skimming through an article and reading a headline. You have to, you have to put more time in. And if you're not willing to put that time in, you should probably refrain from having super strong opinions. You should be one of those individuals that does more of the listening than the, uh, the sharp, hard um, advocation of, of certain issues. So with all that being said, Sandeep, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your, your insight in the legal realm. I found your information very helpful and very, uh, very eye-opening. Thank you so much, Sandeep, for coming on. Really appreciate it. This was really awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I learned so much and I loved listening to you talk. So thank you. Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, Like I said, this is, uh, I think, a drop in the ocean of the various ways that, you know, our systems can be improved. And, um, you know, that's why you guys have, are doing the work you're doing. and, And I appreciate that. Just amazing, Sandy. Really, honestly, amazing. I had great teachers. Mr. Kramer was my teacher, everyone. I thought you were talking about Columbia. Ah! Ah! Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast and catch us on the next episode. Later, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.